it, this is not a this is not a people centered approach. You know, this is not a people centered. It's not a it's not an approach that's invested in. How do we really give this person kind of the second chance? How do we make sure this person has the opportunity maybe to go to get their get their bachelor's or their master's or their doctorate even while they're incarcerated so they're set up for the time after? How do we make sure that you know they have the the kind of um, pastoral care or spiritual guidance that that really gets them grounded for this next part in their life. That that's not that's not in the calculus. Hello, and welcome back to the Prison Cells Podcasts. I'm one of your hosts, Robert Craig, and with us as usual is Tank Johnson, who's consulting with Abolish Private Prisons. How you doing, Tank? Very good. Good. Also with us as usual, John Dacey, the Executive Director of Abolish Private Prisons. John, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks. Good morning from Phoenix. Good. And we are very lucky to have with us today the Reverend John Vaughn. Reverend, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm good. Good to be with you here in Atlanta. Great. So why don't we start off by just you telling us a little bit about yourself and the kind of work that you've been doing? Great. Well, it's uh, well, once again, it's good to be with you both. So starting this month, I will have been the executive pastor here at the historic Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. Um, and it really has been a pleasure to to be here. Um, it's a church with a great tradition. It is known by most as the spiritual home of Martin Luther King Jr. and Martin Luther King Sr., but has really, you know, since its founding, you know, almost a hundred and you know, 38 years ago, has had social justice within its DNA as a faith community. Um, I come to this work uh, having spent previous parts of my career in New York City. I worked in philanthropy. I worked at the historic Riverside Church, heading the education social justice ministries there. I did faith-based organizing in East Harlem. And, and I think through that all have, have at different moments touched on the criminal legal system. And so it is... Uh, so it's a pleasure to be with here with you today to really talk about this important topic. Great. And I, I think people that have studied civil rights in the United States who have worked in the in the civil rights field have probably heard about Ebenezer. Um, what kind of stuff has Ebenezer done that people may be familiar with or people that aren't familiar with that they should be familiar with that, that the church has been involved in? Well, look, historically, voting rights has actually been in the DNA of this church going back to not only Martin Luther King Sr., but even his predecessor, the Reverend A.D. Williams, who was Martin Luther King Jr.'s maternal grandfather. Um, so voting rights, I think the long, uh, the long struggle in terms of desegregation, um, kind of within the congregation, there has been this strong commitment to black community empowerment and home ownership and businesses. 
um, has been kind of a gathering place for folks within the civil rights movement. And, and you know, the thing that is actually really notable is it is still seen as, if you will, almost holy ground when one is looking at this intersection of faith and social justice. And so oftentimes when people, you know, throughout the country and in Atlanta are looking to start marches to really lean into the message of nonviolence and social change, they start in our neighborhood. I remember when um, a lot of what was happening around George Floyd happened a summer ago, and there was a call for people to come start marches in our neighborhood as a way to respond to any of the violence they may have seen in terms of violent responses. But it's to say that we really are about nonviolence. We are about love and looking at and committed to social justice through love and nonviolence. Great. And I, I think the that faith perspective really ties into the topic that we're going to be talking about today in terms of privatization, and that's human assets under management, right? And so I think most of the discussion that we're going to talk about today is how historically and in you know modern day, people have really been reduced to assets and what that does to them as a person, the, the way it sort of devalues their dignity and, and strips them of that sort of core piece of humanity. And I know uh, Abolish Private Prisons has been very lucky to work with faith groups in the, in the work that we do. And a lot of you know prison ministry and, and working with folks is about restoring that humanity and treating people as you know full humans whether they're inside, whether they're outside, the kind of mistakes that they've done. Um, so, you know, I, I think if you have any thoughts just generally before we jump into it about how faith and humanity and dignity are all sort of related to that privatization and that reduction of, of a person to an asset. I mean, I think that really is, look, at the core of our faith traditions and certainly in Christian tradition, it really is about loving your neighbor as yourself and loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And that's really the core of what it means to be a Christian. And so that sense of love really is affirming the integrity, affirming the essential personhood within each person. So it's a core of what we bring to the table as people of faith. And so I think that even in a situation where one may be um, serving the consequences of one's action, even as a result of incarceration. It doesn't mean then that you dehumanize them. The question is, you serve, you, 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 there are consequences to actions, but how do you still affirm the integrity in people? And how do you affirm, you know, that, you know, in my tradition, you know, our God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and, and unconditional love. And so how do we then approach the, the experience of incarceration as one through a lens of <clears throat> love and rehabilitation and affirming personhood versus what we see and observe as one that it tries to dehumanize at every, at every at every turn that looks to kind of make a judgment about who one is because one is there. And, and so I think we've got it. We, we have to think both differently about incarceration in general, but boy, when you layer the, the, the profit motive onto it, 
it it just intensifies that um, it intensifies that both seeing it's it's seeing people less as the humanity you're seeing them through these negative lenses and then you add that sense of seeing them as commodities and so it really is in some ways it's this it's this dehumanization on steroids if you will when you look at private you know the the privatization of prisons and so i think it's a you know for us as a, a, so the coalition that we've been we helped found with pastor warnock our senior pastor with the temple here in atlanta with originally auburn seminary in new york but now odyssey impact is it's a multi-faith effort that seeks to end mass incarceration and really view people that are incarcerated as other human beings. They've made mistakes, um, needing second chances and the opportunities then to build, you know, to build a new life. I'm not even talking about the people who are who are in there unjustly and in there for, you know, and so I think that's a whole nother you know, another topic, if you will, but just at its core, you know, how do we, how do we view through the lens of love? How do we, through the lens of redemption, how do we view through the lens of second chance versus the lens of, of leaping, of heaping punitive on punitive on punitive and dehumanizing other people that are created by God. Right. And I know the, current work that you're doing, at least in the way that we came to know your group, is through in mass incarceration, uh, which is a, a really great movement. But I think in I think maybe let's put that in context. Let's tell the story of how we got to where we are into this modern incarceral state that includes the private system. And I think that there's no real way to talk about the modern prison state without going back to slavery in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the, you know, of the long laundry list of terrible things about slavery, one of the worst was the dehumanization of it, right? The reduction of a person to Mm -hmm. that kind of, you know, the not even a laborer, right? Because that implies personhood, but just a tool that that the plantation owner would use. So I I wonder if you have any thoughts about, you know, slavery uh, and dignity and how that privatization aspect it is tied together in in the faith context well i think that it's it is um i think that the equal justice initiative and montgomery has it right where it really talks about incarceration as a modern day experience of slavery and so it is the sense of you know historically you know, it was, is seeing human beings as, as clearly commodities. I remember, I remember my first visit to Montgomery to the Peace and Justice Memorial and to, to the museum there. And then you're walking down, um, one of the main streets is called Commerce Street, (laughs) But you can you can literally see the ease with which enslaved, you know, people could be unloaded and walk down Carmer Street, <laughs> you know, into these warehouses, and then right there you had 
you know, I mean, it was set up so it could economic, you, you could, you could move people economically and easily, you know, and then the, and then the slave block, which is where now the fountain stands there, you know, it, it was made for commerce. It was made, you know, it was, it was set up that way and you can, you can see it and you can feel it. And, and so, so everything about it was about, was about, it was about making money. It was about, um, it was about agricultural success on the backs of enslaved human beings. And so all of that was kind of set up. And I think even in the, in the Jim Crow era, that sense of, that sense of, it didn't shift people's relation or view of, of enslaved folks. So they were no longer enslaved, but they were still seen through the same lens. And so I think that's been sown and baked into, unfortunately, our country. And so it's easier, I mean, for a number of us who looked at what happened on July, you know, on January 6th, um, you know, 20, you know, 2020, you know, 2021, you're thinking, well, if, if those were black people, there would have been a different response. And so you feel like there's something that's baked into kind of people's views of that sense of the humanity or the less than, you know, when looking at what, so it's easier than to, it's either than it's the one is not saying it, you know, not saying it oftentimes in very overt ways, but one's actions tell us that one thinks differently about people of color than they do folks that aren't people of color, you know, and that one's orientation towards people of color is different. And so you see that played out. Um, so it makes it easier than to, to create public policies than, you know, through, I mean, I remember the stop and frisk experience in New York for years, you know, or the, what, you know, oftentimes there are, there are, criminal codes that almost seem to punish you for being poor, you know, that will end, that will, that will end you up in prison. Or you look at the difference between, you know, the, you know, those that were, those who were charged with crack cocaine versus marijuana laws and who uses, who uses those drugs and how, how they were disproportionate. And so there's just, it happens in so many different levels in terms of shaping how we see, how we see other human beings. So I think slavery, and I think even, you know, that started from 1619, you know, from the first enslaved Africans, it was baked into our country. And so a lot of our journey as a country is how do we, how do we name it? How do we unpack it? How do we heal from it? How do we create? Um, how do we create a different relationship with each other? And I think the faith community plays a central role in that. Like this, this is who we are. This is when we are at our best. We are able to preach and live our lives in ways that we see the essential humanity in each other. And, 
And that's why I think it's important for us as a multi-faith initiative to end mass incarceration, to be present and to have a voice and to act around this. At APP, we believe the only way to truly end for-profit prisons in the United States is to challenge the constitutionality of private for-profit prisons in the courts. And with your help and moral courage, we will succeed. Completely donor-funded, we ask for your support. Your tax-deductible contribution will provide vital funding for building the infrastructure necessary to win a fight of this scale. And every dollar will bring us one step closer to our goal of abolishing private prisons. Please join the fight today by visiting abolishprivateprisons.org and click the donate button at the top of the site. And of course, like, share, and subscribe to the Prison Cells podcast from wherever you listen. Now back to the discussion. John, would you be willing to share with us your own personal journey? What brought you to the head of of the movements that, that you're now leading? Well, I think, you know, it's, I would say that it's roots for me actually started in seminary. So I went to seminary in Berkeley, California, the Pacific School of Religion. And I, uh, it was my mentor and a longtime family friend, the Reverend Dr. Archie Smith, who was my professor. And one of the classes that he taught was a class where we would actually go to Pleasantville Correctional Facility um, in the Bay Area, and we would we would do a worship service, and then we would sit in the common areas and just be in conversation with folks who were incarcerated. And it was really that first time that you know I started to get some understanding about how folks were there what the experience is like. And this was not, this was not a maximum security, you know, so there was a walking around and, but it, it, it began to, it began the journey of getting me to think about what was going on here. Um, I think the second for me was, um, and I, and I'll say particularly, you know, during the whole, um, it was it was the the Clinton administration's kind of move of kind of heavy criminalization and punitiveness that really started to fill up a lot of the jails that one began to see to say there's something that may not be right about this like people are, are, are and where are people really getting the the second chances and the willingness to basically throw people under the jail you know, through that, and a lot of the language that was around it. I think the other for me was, and I and I think we have to name this tension. I think we have to be real about this tension, is both the concerns around, you know, folks that may end up in prison because they never really got the second chance, you know, and the and the concerns around at times policing that may feed some of the incarcer you know some of the incarceration rates as well as public policies that fed those rates but you also you know I worked in East Harlem at the height of the AIDS and the crack crack epidemic and 
there is also this dichotomy of wanting police officers to respond, you know, to the, to the, you know, to those that were selling crack and respond to those that were, that were doing crime. And so we have, so there is this paradox, this tension that we've experienced, that we experience between, you know, wanting people to be dealt with justly, wanting people to have second chances, but at the same point, you know, this, this fear at times of when, um, when you see the negative sides of crime or the negative sides of, you know, of drug selling as a way to try to, to improve quality of life in communities. I think that, you know, it is the opportunity here then is to say, you know, maybe we need some different rules to this game. We need a different way to do this, which is also partly why, you know, we through our the multi-faith initiative have been really have have been real champions of the restorative justice work and the restorative justice movement. Because I think they provide ways, they provide alternatives to locking people up. They provide alternatives to um you know, to kind of going through what has been a very dehumanizing criminal legal system. Um, so those are things in the past that helped kind of shape or at least got, you know, connected me to this. And I'll really just say the last is over the last three years, I've had a chance to work with Pastor Warnock around this and to really know his own story of his own brother, you know, who was a police officer, who was incarcerated, who was in a sting you know, that, you know, that was a sting, no one got hurt, you know, no crime was actually uh, committed, and then, you know, found himself, in car, you know, facing a 20 to 30 year sentence. And so, you know, you're thinking, so what, what's right about this? Um, and, you know, so th- those elements, I think, have really gone into at least shaping how I've come to this work. If I could ask just one follow-up, um, Reverend, you used the term restorative justice. Could you just provide a summary description of what you mean by that? So restorative justice are processes that where instead of you, you know, going through kind of the traditional criminal legal system route, that you have an opportunity to acknowledge um, it's a it's a structured process where where the where the one who has perpetrated the crime is actually in a in a process with the folks who they perpetrated the crime against, and so there's a chance there's an opportunity for admitting one's wrong, um, and then coming up with a with solutions of consequences that um, that help. That, that everybody feels a sense of both wholeness and a sense of being able to move on. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean that you lock, that you lock somebody up, but that there are other ways of living out consequences for this. And let me say, I mean, this is, this is a very human-centered approach. You know, it's a, it's a human-centered approach versus when you're talking about prisons, private prisons in particular, which is a money-centered approach, <laughs> you know? And so we're much more interested in those things that are human-centered that really are affirming the humanity and the integrity 
of people versus that which is driven by forces that that don't really take that into account. Yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of that, there's when we were doing research into the private prison industry, the corporations, the two large ones, CoreCivic and GeoGroup, are publicly traded. And that means that they're required to file documents with some government organizations to continue to operate and uh, to be able to share uh, to sell shares and be part of the stock market. And in a couple of those uh, required documents, the private prison industry refers to the people that are in their prison, not as people. The, the line item that they talk about is a compensated mandate, right? And if you look at their revenue sheet, they get they average it out and it's, it changes year to year, but in the like 80 to $90 range and per day, and they don't talk about the amount of people that they have in their system. They talk about the amount of compensated mandates that is part of their revenue stream. And I just think that that kind of language crystallizes what you're talking about, right? It's not about a, a person-centered approach to anything. It's about a revenue-centered approach to how they operate, right? And just that choice of language about how we refer to people, I think, tells you how the corporations think, right? They're not thinking about the people. They're not thinking about how can I, as a corporation, make sure that this person has a chance to get out of prison and express their life the way that they want to. They're thinking about how can I continue to extract revenue from this person in, in order to increase our profits? Well, and the question to me then is, how, you know, what happens when your numbers go down? <laughs> you know, so to me that, you know, part of the then the incentive is you want those numbers to go up so that you can make money. You know, so the incentive is not to have fewer people incarcerated. You have a system that's incentivized to have more people incarcerated because the more people you have incarcerated, the more money you make. Now, look, you know, I think there are there are positives to to the capitalist system, but I think there have to be checks and balances in a capitalist system, and that. And that the profit motive is not is is not a one size fits all, you know. And so I think just the basic, you know, kind of the basic understanding of well, if you have more people, you make more money. If you have less people, you make less money. So therefore, you're going to be more invested in policies, in policing, in enforcement that that gets you more people so that you can make more money, and you know, there's something that's not, there's something that just is not right about that. It's just not good about that. And as, and then I think as people of faith, we're saying if it, this is not a, this is not a people centered approach, you know, this is not a people centered, it's not a, it's not an approach that's invested in how do we really give this person kind of the second chance? How do we make sure this person has the opportunity maybe to go to, get their get their bachelor's or their master's or their doctorate even while they're incarcerated so they're set up for the time after how do we make sure that you know they have the the kind of um pastoral care or spiritual guidance that that really gets them grounded for this next part in their life that that's not that's not in the calculus <laughs> if you are really about you know 
getting the, the highest number of people in there because the incentive is about people equals money. And remind us of anything? Well, that's what slavery was, you know? Number of people, you know, get you, you know, increases your profits. The more people you have work in the fields, the more people you have that are enslaved, you know, the higher your profits are. Rev, I gotta, I, I wanna jump in here a little bit. I, you know, you, you, you said something very interesting. Like you said, what happens if their numbers go down, right? And so as, as you know, we all collectively fight this battle, um, is the goal to change the hearts and minds of those involved or is the goal to, um, you, you know, is it, you know, because it has to be incremental, right? Because it's, it's never going to be a, a, a complete jump. So what, what do you think is, your, is, is the main focus when you're trying to accomplish something as, as large as this? Well, first off, I think we've got to get that we've got to decrease the numbers. Like there just have to be fewer people that are incarcerated. We we have to we have to stem the tide of what is really this mass incarceration movement. We need to we need to we need to stem that tide. We need to reduce the number of people that are incarcerated. That's like that's first and foremost. You know, I think that there, um, you know. I think what I'd be, you know, I think, you know, we're in kind of the changing hearts and minds business as people of, you know, as faith leaders and as churches. So, I mean, it certainly is a part of what we bring and that it's not just about others, but ourselves. You know, we have to all be continuing in that journey of how do we be more loving? How do we be more just, you know, in the world? The other thing, though, that I think is important and I don't think we pay enough attention to is you know and I will say it's for private prisons but I will just say it for prisons I think in general is you know we don't we're not thinking about the so what are the alternatives what are the economic alternatives for the community that has a private prison so what's the economic alternatives if that private prison is not there anymore what are the economic and 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 a lot of these have gone into rural communities, and so they have been sold as economic development tools for rural communities, you know. And so then what happens is then you now all of a sudden you pit rural communities versus the communities of those of people who are incarcerated, oftentimes mostly people, you know, mostly people of color mostly poorer people. And so they get pitted against each other versus asking the question, so let's look at X community where X private prison is. If that prison was not there anymore, what are the economic development alternatives and opportunities within that community? And we're not paying attention to that. And I think we've got to be asking some, you know, some questions like that at the same time while we address fewer people incarcerated, changing hearts and minds. You know, we have to, we have to, because I think part of, you know, the dynamic, you know, for communities where these prisons are, is that people are saying, you're not listening to us. We need, we need economic opportunity. This is, and, and if they see this is all they have, they're going to fight tooth and nail for it. 
And so are there, are there ways that we can, you know, as we kind of try to take the profit motive out of prisons, as we reduce mass incarceration, that we look at also the economic development challenges and opportunities for a lot of these communities where not only the private prisons are, but other prisons are located. There are many ways to get involved with the Prison Cells podcast, build your moral courage, and help us eradicate for-profit prisons in the U.S. Visit abolishprivateprisons.org today and build the momentum of abolishing private prisons by working with an organization to pass a resolution in support of the cause. Get to know the ins and outs of how private prisons operate and why. Outside of the site, you can write your congressperson and shed light on this awful practice. As always, please like, share, and subscribe to the Prison Cells Podcast from wherever you listen. Now back to the discussion. It reminds me of a conversation we had uh, previously about the incentives and the arguments that people have when it comes to what are we going to spend money on as a country, right? And when it comes to things like locking people up and starting wars, there's basically an endless supply of money. And when it comes to things like you're talking about, what? how can we invest in communities to make sure that communities can thrive, right? How can we make sure that the uh, this community has enough education to make sure that they can succeed in what's becoming an increasingly high-tech economy that we have. Those kinds of investments are often questioned and we talk about things like the deficit and you know inflation and things like that. And so the, the conversation you're talking about is let's think about how like we're going to be spending money anyways, right? Let's be thinking about how, how, does, the, how does that community want the money to be spent to help them? You know, what really are our national priorities? I mean, I, you know, you know, fortunately, I think it is still a budget. You know, the federal budget is still a budget that's driven by fear. When you look at the amount of money we spend on the military and um, the ease with which we spend that money and we kind of write the blank check. And, you know, there, there's got to be a recalibration of our priorities as a country. Like we have, we've got to recalibrate what those priorities are. And, you know, and so, you know, that are there places where we move some money into rural communities that look at economic opportunities? Are there ways that we move money into, uh, into communities as that, that provide more that think more entry level are, you know, we, we, we find ways to, we invest in ways of how we bridge that gap, you know, the divide, the, you know, the technological divide, you know, around jobs, um, you know, and so I think we, we have to begin to put some of our brain power around some of that, some of that thinking. And then, cause I do think that, uh, you know, that our, our, our fight, is around ending mass incarceration and the fight around um, privatization of prisons is is a microcosm of the of a larger spiritual illness, you know. I think for us, and that it is important to both fight these fights and ask some larger questions, and ask some larger questions around our context. Ask some larger questions around our country's priorities, our state's priorities. 
and and begin to you know and to begin to kind of harness our creative thinking and creative power around so what you know what are if we if this is a people centered approach you know the approach is the people center in terms of those who are incarcerated the people center is around the people who work <laughs> in those private prisons you know and then the people center is maybe indeed is the hearts and minds of those who are you know who maybe are running private prisons and 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 to um you know and what you know like maybe the goal is to you know to, to, you know is for you to maybe be out of that business you know and you know and what are the other business opportunities for you you know that are out there versus versus human chattel you know so I think those are the, I think, you know, we, we have to, you, we have to have both the laser focus on the things that we're trying to change. And we also have to have a more global analysis and global problem solving around the context. Like we've got to, we, we got to, we got to do both of those things at the same time. Yeah. I think before you jump in, John, I want for the record, I think we should say that you're, you know, they are these private prisons do pitch themselves to rural communities as being economic saviors, economic opportunities. In fact, they're not right. They pay very, very, very low wages. And the churn, the turnover at these places is extremely high. And I think another thing you said, which is thinking about the people, the the sort of title of the podcast today is human assets under management. And I think it's hard to view the employees of these private prisons, the low level employees as anything other than human assets that are under management in a different way, right? Like they right. are just another tool that the corporation is using to make more money, right? They could be paying guards more. They could be paying the same kind of uh, benefits and wages that union jobs get, but they don't because they're like you're saying, they're they're taking these communities and they're putting them under management. So I think, you know, it, it is if, if it is going to be a human centered approach, it's got to be both groups of people. And sorry, John, I cut you off. I, I just want to get think, that. In but, I, but I think, Robert, you know, it's and then I think it's important, you know, then part of the work that is before us. And I feel we as faith communities are well positioned for this. This issue is one of the few issues that right now really crosses. See, I mean, this is an issue that crosses. It crosses theology. It crosses political affiliation. It crosses class. It crosses geography. Like it has, it has the opportunity for great coalition building among the not the usual suspects. You know. And so, you know, and that's part of our chat. You know, what we're trying to do is is build some of those alliances and relationships that aren't always the usual suspects. So when we had our conference, our initial conference in June 2019 in Atlanta, I mean, we were we were lay people, we were clergy, we were judges, we were prosecutors, we were folks that had been incarcerated. Uh, you know, we had the folks that you know, I mean, these heartbreaking stories of folks that were incarcerated for 25, 30 years and didn't do it. And it took them years to do it. And then you had folks that were in for 25, 30 years who did it. And they said, you know, you know, you had, you know, community-based organizations, you had 
some corporate, and it was this interesting mix of people, you know, who, you know, and, and it's that sense that we've got, we have to, we have to, we have to kind of find and build those alliances, not just with the folks who are the low hanging fruit for us, but who are the unusual suspects that we also need to be in relationship with. And so the opportunity to be in relationship with those who actually work in these private prisons in these communities, you know, the folks, the businesses that have, they maybe supply those prisons, you know, and, you know, because I, you know, my hunch is that you actually talk to some of them that, you know, they, they might like to see something different happen, but they don't have a choice. You know, they've got to, you know, they got to pay their rent. They got to pay their mortgage. They got to have food. You know, there are these, these living expenses that that have to that have to happen. One of the one of the things that you know I find just so amazing about particularly Atlanta is you know the like you were talking the the, the diverse um, group of folks that will what that will come to uh, together for a cause. I, I saw that with uh, Miss Bottoms, and I saw that with the elections. And, you know, when, when you get outside of that Wakanda that is Atlanta, um, how do we draw, how do we bring other people? Because it almost feels like you're fighting a different fight when you get outside of those, you know, at Atlanta, you know? So we've actually had, we've actually been doing... Um, so we the ending mass the multi-faith initiative then mass incarceration works in six regions and in Georgia is one of the regions and one of the things that we've been doing has been we've been doing trainings with faith communities not just in Atlanta but different parts of the state around doing record restrictions and doing bailouts you know the number of people though who's you know who have not been able to adopt or get a job because something was on their record. It could have been an arrest, not even a conviction, you know, um, or it is a conviction. And so, and so churches have really begun to grab onto this to say, hey, this is a service we can provide for some of our people as a way, as a way into beginning to, you know, desire to do something around this. So, it's, you know, so I think it's not just in Atlanta, you know, it's, you know, there are people that are in congregations who have records that need to be expunged. There are people in congregations that have folks that are formerly incarcerated that are sitting in their pews. And so it's giving people the opportunity to find ways to engage in that work. I would also say that the, um, you know, we're, we're also, uh, we're also having conversations with some of the different district attorneys and prosecutors in different parts of the state to really look at the role that, that their discretion can play and plays around ending mass incarceration. And so it is, you know, there is traction outside of Atlanta. So we've got them doing some work in Columbus. We've got conversations happening in Savannah and, you know, we want to, you know, do this also in other parts of the state. And so it's, but I think, you know, the faith communities oftentimes 
can be those or the churches or mosques or or temples can be those gathering places or can be don't have as much baggage as maybe you know or don't have you know the they aren't pegged as a particular way because oftentimes our communities have have that diversity sitting right in our pews you know um you know, I, I know we're kind of, you know, in the middle of the conversation, but I, I just want to say that I am so honored to have you in front of me today as an African-American from Indiana, uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church. I mean, we have literally uh, seen it in films. We've, we've, we've just, it's been embedded in us. And to talk to one of the pastors uh, from that church, I just want to tell you, it is like a complete fan moment. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you so much, Brother Tank. It's uh, it is it's an honor to be able to to share. And I think this is a, you know, we've talked a lot about it, Ebenezer. I think that this is an important season for us as a church because we always remind people that Martin Luther King Jr. didn't just like appear out of thin air. Like he didn't just materialize at the Dexter Street, you know, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. He came out of a context. He came out of this church community. You know, so this is a church community that has this sense of love, the sense of justice in its DNA. I mean, people people forget, you know, that Daddy King's wife was murdered in Ebenezer you know, by a young black man, you know, and also the head of the deacon board. And, and Daddy King goes to Grady Hospital. He's sitting with his dying wife. He goes into the next room of the gunman who shot his wife. He talks to him, he prays with him, and he forgives him. And I'm going... But that, like that, that's that's the kind of love. Those are the stories that are in the DNA of this congregation, you know. And so I think it helped shape who Martin Luther King Jr. was, you know, you know, including his, you know, loving parents. But it was a community, and it was a legacy that's been in the bones of this community. And so, um, you know, it is an honor to be here and to be one of the to be stewarding this legacy to kind of its next level. Reverend, if I could use the biblical analogy of, you know, you can give a man a fish or you can teach him to fish. It seems to me that what your um, grassroots leadership through end mass incarceration is doing is teaching people to fish. So you've been providing tools or toolkits to people in other parts of the country on working to end mass incarceration. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, so one of the things we did coming out of the conference was to create a faith toolkit. And you can get it on the website, www.endingmassincarceration.com. And it shows how do you, you know, it shows kind of their preaching guides, there's um, study guides, there's films, but we also, you know, it's the how to do you do an expungement, you know, record restriction event, how do you do a bailout event, how do you engage in restorative justice. So it begins to provide some 
practical tools for faith communities. I'll also say, John, that what I think is important about this movement is that, you know, it, it congrega- congregations at their best do both of those things. We provide fish and we teach people to fish. And, and so part of what we, you know, we're trying to do is how do we bring both of those gifts to the table? So one of the things we've done is we've oftentimes provided food for people who are formerly incarcerated, who have been, who haven't been out that long, you know, so we work with some of the reentry programs and it will provide food. Absolutely. But at the same time, we are, we are teaching our, our congregations, teaching our members in terms that we've got to address the systemic issues and, and doing that in partnership with people who are formerly incarcerated. And that kind of a partnership and addressing the systemic issues um, that will reduce the number of people who are incarcerated is a critical role for us to play. So we are both teaching people to fish and and at times giving people fish, you know, when they, you know, when they need it that moment. As uh, I remember when I was in philanthropy, I was doing a lot of funding around work related to black men and boys. And one of them was around this issue. One of the areas was around this issue of mass incarceration. And I remember talking to groups that were working with people who were, who were just coming out of, who were just coming out, who had just been incarcerated. And they said, look, I can't, unless we've, we have to first find people a place to live and we got to get them some food and we got to try to get them a job. And when we do that, then we can, then it makes it, then we can get people involved in the advocacy work, you know? And so if we got to meet those basic needs when people are coming back, so then they've got the floor under them that then allows them to be engaged in the, the organizing and the advocacy work. So we have to, we have to hold both of those roles as faith communities in this movement. Yeah, I, I mean, I could sit here and talk to you for hours, but I think ending on that kind of call to action and explaining to people how they can get involved is usually a great way to do it. Is there anything else that anybody else has to share about getting people involved or any further questions? No, no. I, you know, again, I just want to reiterate um, just thanking you for your service. And um, I will be j- visiting Ebenezer Baptist Church, and 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 sometime when when we can travel freely again, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, Amen, Tank. We'd love to have you, and let me tell you that this is a bit of a it's a bit of a tangent. Um, but my uh, doctoral my doctor of ministry thesis was the intersection of faith, sports, and activism among Black professional athletes. You know. And so I, I think that there is an opportunity for, particularly for black athletes of faith who have a commitment to justice to, to really better harness their voices and harness their moral voices in these moments, because this is, you know, this is a, we're in a moral crisis, you know, and we need that spiritual leadership. And I think the spiritual leadership is not just for us as faith leaders, you know, but it's for us, you know, as people of faith in the different places that we stand. So I'd love to even, 
at some later date chat with you more about some of that and some of the some of the brothers and sisters I've been in conversation with. Yeah, I was going to say, um, you know, one of the things that I'm tasked with uh, at the NFL is creating events at the Super Bowl and the Pro Bowl for the NFL fathers. And um, I think this would be tremendous. I think um, there's so many there's so many of us who are involved and want to get involved. So I will follow up on that as well. Amen. John, uh, Reverend, I really appreciate you coming on board here today. And I look forward to continuing working with you through Ebenezer Baptist Church and abolish private prison. Well, I want to really, I want to offer my gratitude for the work of abolish private prisons. I remember, um, I remember it must have been 20 years ago. I started, I did some work with a gentleman named Sai Khan. Sai was the head of a group called Grassroots Leadership in Charlotte, North Carolina, and did a lot of organizing and training in the South. And Sai, at that point, um, began to turn his attention to private prisons. And he wrote a book called Fox in the Hen House, which is about, you know, private prisons. And I remember when Sai started to do that work, he got a lot of pushback initially from a lot of, you know, people. It's like, why are we doing private prisons? That seems to kind of get us off of the road. And, you know, and and today, you know, people, he was so, um, he was so able to see kind of the future that what this really meant for poor people and communities of color and the profit motive. And so I really want to, I want to name size leadership way back then as one who was who was seeing this and was beginning to talk about it in the time where even a lot of the allies in this work weren't couldn't quite kind of get their full heads around it and um, but how important this work is and and really gratitude for the fact that you all are are here doing this work and know that you have allies in the multi-faith initiative to end mass incarceration in this work. Well, thank you so much again for coming on. I think, you know, everybody who does activism realizes that people have a limited amount of time, right? It's not, you can't, you can't challenge everything. You just, there's 24 hours a day and you have to sleep a few hours at least. Um, so picking and choosing battles. And I, I think if I had a closing thought, it, it would be that it is about building relationships and forging relationships with people that you might not agree with on everything. But this one thing with with private prisons and ending mass incarceration is something where you're seeing new friendships forming, new, you know, sitting with people that you normally wouldn't. Um, and, and it's been a, a huge, you know, growth in my life to meet a bunch of people that I otherwise wouldn't have. Um, so just once again, thanks from from us here at the podcast and from Abolish Private Prisons for joining us. 
And for all our users, this is you're used to hearing it at this point, but it really does help spread the word to whatever app you're using to listen to the podcast. Go on, leave a review, leave a leave a rating and just tell one or two other people to listen to it, because it really is about sharing the word and getting more people aware of private prisons and the kind of work that's going around. So thank you all so much and have a good rest of the day.